Um, I would love for you to turn to Matthew 18 in the Bible, in the Pew Bible or the Bible that you have from home or your device or whatever you do. Uh, it's great to always have the Word of God open in front of you as we consider it. I do encourage you to have a Bible that you use, that you know how to navigate, you know where things are um, on, on the page and so on. That makes um, It does make life easier as far as witnessing, as far as studying, as far as finding things um, in your Bible there. In the moment, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 18. We're continuing our series on discipleship, as we've been for a little while and continue for a little while. We are in the section of the series of discipleship in which we're looking at the family as a major component of discipleship. We looked at the husband, we looked at the wife. Now we're moving to look at the parents, the parent-child relationship as, a, as the primary disciple relationship in the life of the family as far as other than the husband and wife goes. And also the primary disciple relationship in the life of the children. Parents are the major discipler of children. That's how God has instituted in the family. And as we look at, as we go on in this series of discipleship, as we look at parenting as discipling, uh, this, this part of our series we're going to divide into four parts. Uh, we're going to look at raising children in light of God's covenant promises. That's a big part. We, we need to think that way if we're going to disciple children appropriately. Then we want to look at the biblical how-tos of raising children, including spanking and teaching and so on. And then number three, we want to look at children in the public worship. We tend to think that, oh, there's nothing in the public worship for children. It's just a nightmare. It makes, it's, it's loud, uh, and it just makes it harder for parents to, um, to, lead, to, to actually worship and so on. I want us to consider that that's a major part of the cycle of our children is children in the public worship of God. Uh, it's interesting that broad evangelicalism is saying now that one of the reasons there's a great exodus of young people, college-aged people from church, 18 to 20, is because they have never been part of the church. Since they were little children, they've been shipped out to some other building, to some other thing, and now they are 18, 19, they have to now come to big church, a church they have never been part of. So there's no connection there. So there's no reason to really to stay. And then four, uh, super important, you know, so these are not going to be completely exclusive. Like we're going to touch on these as we go on. But the fourth area is we wanted to talk about a Christian philosophy of education. And the, important, the, the order of these words are important. It's not a philosophy of Christian education. It's a Christian philosophy of education. And we're going to address that. Uh, as a fourth element. So not today, uh, as we go through this portion, these are the four things we're going to concentrate on for the next few weeks. All right? So let's look at Matthew 18 and read verses 1 through 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if, you, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Discipleship is happening everywhere. I hope that we understand that now. That this, this, it, you don't turn off. Discipleship is just going on everywhere. We're being discipled by everything in, in our lives. Uh, we, and we must be aware of that. Our children are being discipled by everything as well. Uh, culture is being created everywhere. How do we deal with all of that as we minister to our children? The, f- the first thing I want us to see today, and if that's all we see, I'm okay with it for two reasons. Then I don't have to prepare a lesson for next week. No, because I'm not teaching next week anyway. Isaiah is teaching next week. Uh, but really for one reason. This is so important. If that's all we get today, uh, we will have profited uh, tremendously from the Lord. The family must be the primary place where culture is created. What I mean by culture? Beliefs, worldview, who we are. The, the, the family has to be the primary place where that is created. The biblical family is an instituted government. You know, it doesn't give us the warm and fuzzies to talk about government, but the family is an instituted government. As a matter of fact, the first government instituted by God, established by God at the very beginning of history. We find the family instituted in Genesis 1 and 2. That's the first government. The civil government instituted in Genesis 9. And the church government, or the church as an institution, is established in Genesis 12 through Genesis 26 there. And this government, as with any good government, has a constitution. The family has a constitution, and that constitution is the word of God. That's it. That's the constitution for the family. And the head of this government, the head of each family, is the husband. The chief advisor to the husband is the wife. And the subjects of this small kingdom are the children. And it's important that families establish that culture in their home. And the children are temporary subjects. They, the parents are instructed by God to 
prepare their children to leave at the proper time in order to establish their own families. So that's the structure that got established for the family. So parents have to uh, raise their children with that idea in mind. We're raising you to leave. And then eventually they should uh, leave. And each family is designed to be a culture. There are no two families the same in our church. There's different cultures. There's different vocabulary. Um, Often uh, people ask me about Portuguese words that are common in in Zayn and Carol's and Tim Lehman's family. And they have such a strong culture that they have their own vocabulary that a lot of the Portuguese words they use are only used by them. Nobody else in Brazil knows those words, or at least uses them in that meaning, with that meaning. That's part of establishing a culture, and that's true of pretty much every family in the church. We, each family has a language, each family has customs, each family has traditions, each family has countless unspoken assumptions that you only know um, if you're part of that family. Ask the Hoys, do you guys have any traditions that are particular to the Andrew Katie Hoy family? And everybody else start thinking too. <laughs> okay, so that is a tradition. They 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 that's that's a good tradition. Um, how about Anybody else want to share a tradition that this coming to their family? Say it again, Jim. Say it again. Feed dad if he's cranky. Feed dad. That, that's a tradition in the Connerly. Okay, all right. Uh, Jerry. My mom used to cook pancakes every Saturday night, and the whole church knew it. I don't know why. <laughs> so the church just happened to show up? Just dinner. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yes. Uh, Darian, do you guys have any tradition in the Huey home? Cinnamon rolls over the holidays. All right. Jim, do you guys have any tradition in their family, Jim Hunter? Probably she has to. Well, Taco Tuesday. Taco Tuesday. Breakfast for breakfast for dinner. Breakfast for dinner, right? It's funny how a lot of traditions. Uh, uh, revolve around eating, right? Uh, uh, that's good. That, that. So uh, this sounds funny, but that tells you how valuable the dinner table is in the family. Does it make sense? Yeah. Um, God has made the world in such a way that children who grow up in the culture of the family are to be shaped and molded by it. The duty of the husband and father is to ensure that the shaping is done according to the standards of the Word of God. Shaping will happen. Okay? I remember growing up with my dad, and he would do certain things. I said, I'll never do that. I will never say that to my children. And then I catch the words come out of my mouth and looking around to see if it is my dad or I who is saying those words. So shaping is happening, period. Uh, the question is, are we going to shape them according to the Word of God? or according to uh, something else. Families are often plagued by two problems. One problem is, uh, one problem takes place when a husband and wife establish a very real culture in their family, but because of their sin and rebellion, it is a rebellious culture. 
In such case, children are simply being brought under the wrath of God. In every simple rebellious culture, the children are being brought up under the, the, the rebellious, under the wrath of God. Unless the grace of God intervenes, the sins of the fathers are visited upon subsequent generations. And you might say, oh, how, but what about Jeremiah says uh, when he criticizes that saying, that proverb, it was common at the time that uh, uh, the, fa- the fathers eat sour grapes and the... Um, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. Well, what Jeremiah was, was combating there was children were saying, oh, it's not our fault. It's my parents' fault. So in essence, what Jeremiah was combating was Freudian uh, psychoanalysis uh, there. Uh, it is, my, and, and, and Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, quit that, children. You are responsible for your sins. And that's 100% true. But also, in a rebellious culture in the home, those children, the, the sins of the parents, will visit the children. They will grow all those same rebellious sins unless the, the grace of God intervenes there. So that's the first problem. The second problem, which is way more common in modern, modern Christian families, is that of forgetting that the family is a culture at all and allowing, by default, outside cultural influences to take primacy in how the children are shaped. You see the two differences? One is the active rebellion against God. That's, that's the unbeliever out there. The other one is just way common in the church is that just not pay attention to it. Forgetting that we are set in a culture in our home and that the kids are going to be a product of that. Does it make sense to you this second problem and how more common it is in the church? When parents abdicate their responsibility to influence their children in the home, the vacuum will not be there for long. Everybody in the world is trying to influence our children. And because this is a fallen world, those who take over the process of shaping uh, the children, those who rush to fill the void left by disobedient parents, and you don't have to be actively going against God to be disobedient. You get that, right? By not doing what God calls us to do, we're being disobedient, whether we're conscious of that or not. And those who rush in to fill the gap that left by disobedient parents will more than likely be fools in the sense of Proverbs. Brothers, sisters, it is moral idiocy to leave children alone in order for them to learn alone or to make decisions for themselves. If you do that, You'll be the only person doing that to your children because everybody else in the world will be trying to influence them to go the way they want them to go. Children are malleable and will be shaped either by godly people or ungodly people, but as children, they will be shaped. So you can see that this discipling relationship with children is super important. We have to be aware of it, and we need to be working at it. Now, as, as children, as Christian parents, seek to apply this truth to the building of a godly culture in their families, what are some possible obstacles? We're trying to be obedient to God. We're trying to do what God calls us to do. We're trying to have this Christian aroma in our house. We're trying to raise children that... In the fear and admonition of the Lord, we're trying to, uh, by God's grace, raise them to know the Savior. What are obstacles that get in the way of doing that? Carol? Media. 
I couldn't hear you. Social media, all right. Or else, what other obstacles got in the way? Tammy. Television. Television, okay. Darren. Sports, all right. What else? Our own hypocrisies, yes. What else? What are obstacles that get in the way of trying to be a godly parent and raising children in a truly biblical Christian culture? Adam. Ignorance of the word, yes. Independence. Independence, yes. Abdicating responsibility. Oh, the church will do it. Oh, the fill in the blank. Yes. Yeah. Saying, oh, it's somebody else's job. Yeah. Andrew. Just the difficulty of, of accomplishing the task. Being tempted to give up. Apathy. Indifference. Yes. Friends. Friends, all right. Child-centered parenting. Child-centered parenting, yes. Brandon. Laziness. Laziness, Yes. Unbelieving family. All right, Jerry. How about not picking proper priorities? L- lacking proper priorities. Yes, Carol. Oh, no, she's just being an alcoholic. So part of the priority issue here. Let me suggest this, that the first great obstacle to overcome is within the minds of the husband and wife themselves. It's not out there. It's in here. The Bible tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Nor it is more important to break with our modern world in our minds than on the issue of the definition of the family. What is a family? What's our priority? What are the right priorities? What is it? that we want our kids to be when they grow up, and so on. That mind transformation has to happen in the, in the, parent, in the parents, the, the, the husband and the wife. Secondly, many couples are reluctant. And by the way, all that you said are true obstacles as well. Right? I'm just trying to bring some others here. Uh, many couples are reluctant to assume all the responsibility for the culture and nourishment of their children. No, yes, I'm, I, I, I do part of it. Part is my responsibility. But there's all these other things that are going on as well. Many cultural influences shape our society, and parents are responsible to monitor them all. You can never say, the wife made me do it. You can never say, oh, well, it's a soccer team, or the school, or the church. Meaning, yes, there might be culpability in those areas, but the responsibility for everything is always um, the parents. So a husband must teach the word of God to his family, especially to his wife, to cleanse her with its application, encourage her when she is faint-hearted to oversee the help that she is to him. And we've seen that in several lessons. On, On earth, she is to be the most important person in his life, and he is to teach the children to love and honor their mom. And the, the children, children need to know that as well. Parents are responsible to maintain a biblical culture in the home through loving discipline, teaching in prayer, and by screening all the sinful, cultivating influences coming from the outside world. So in some ways, we all must be willing to be the not-so-cool parents. 
we have to be willing to, depending what age our children are, realize that we are not first called to be our children's friends. They have all kinds of buddies out there. We're called to be their parents. And as their parents, we're going to make decisions for them that they might not like. Right? It's, um, you know, you, 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 um, somebody, those people say, no, you eat kale because it's good for you. Right? Uh, and then you eat it, perhaps not because you enjoy it, but because you hope that sometime, someplace in the future, the kale is going to show itself as being good uh, <laughs> for you. Um, you know, we'll see against all hope that happens. With children, which is, you know, the kale is a silly example, but with children, we will make decisions that are not what they want. And we are called to do that. Not because we have authority and we just want to abuse our authority, but because we are parents. And God calls us to be parents even before we are buddies. And that changes, right, as your children grow. Um, I think Paul Tripp in, not Paul, Ted Tripp in his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, has a chart in which, you know, uh, as the children get older, your authority over them starts really high when they're little kids, and then it diminishes, but your influence over them increases over time. And that's something to keep in mind as we raise our, our children. So, our minds present an obstacle. The unwillingness to take responsibility for all the influences in the lives of our kids present a difficulty. And thirdly, education presents another obstacle. And there will be at least one lesson, if not more, on that alone. But what are the three kinds of educate, three kinds of schooling that are available for most families? Public, private, home. All right. So yes, I think that covers pretty much everything, right? And um, we need to think about education Christianly and see how it goes. Just simply leaving the public school is not the same as educating our children in Christ. It might be necessary, but just doing that is not educating our children in Christ. Parents who have their children enrolled in Christian schools are responsible to see the cultural weight of the family, that the cultural weight of the family is dominant in what's going on. Dropping your children in a tuition check at a Christian school is not the same as Christian education. That was a, when I was a school principal, that was a battle that I had to fight all the time with parents. Wait, what? You want me to actually work with my children at home? What do I pay you guys for? And then I'll get back the, the blank paper and let's do the math. And K through 12, how many hours you're at school and so on. It, went, it, it, it uh, works out to being 10% of the life of the child is what they spend at school. If they go to a standard you know, time-wise school. So, and you expect us to hear everything <laughs> that you were called to do? It just, the, the math just doesn't work. That's why I love math, right? It's just <laughs> clear. You don't... And just having your children at home is not the same as having a Christian education either. So, uh, just a reaction to pagan culture is not the same as building a biblical culture. I hope you, we, you all see that. So fathers must lead 
establishing this biblical culture, and mothers must be convinced of this importance, the importance of it, in order for it to work in our families. So that's the first thing. As we think about discipling our children, we must uh, establish a biblical culture in our homes. That's beliefs, worldview, traditions, and so on, uh, all from the from the lenses of um, the scriptures that needs to be there. Any questions or comments before we move on to the next thing? All right, so once a husband and wife understand the vision for establishing a Christian culture in the home, they are then prepared for the privilege of receiving children from the hand of the Lord. And you say, well, well, my children came before, way before I understood that. And that's okay. I'm just talking about the ideal, right? So let's set what the ideal is so that we can try to move towards that. And that's where discipling among families is so important as well. The older folks who have done it right, who have done it wrong, who have done it halfway there, who understand things, can come along and disciple the younger folks on this, this idea as, as well. But ideally, when we understand these things, then we're right, ready to receive these young ones from the Lord. I, I love, there's, uh, I always talk about it, there was a letter that Charles Hodge, Charles Hodge was the, uh, a very important professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in the early days. Um, uh, probably, uh, even though he was not the first professor, he was the first one to be really well known in American history. And he writes a letter to his mom, as he did every Sunday, um, talking about the baptism of his first daughter, first child was a daughter, Mary. And he describes, you know, was, uh, the, the church had an afternoon service, it was pouring down rain, it was December 25th, uh, but they did not count it anything that should keep them from going to the Lord's house. They walked to church under a downpour in New Jersey. Anybody from New Jersey here? Uh, but anyway, so that's uh, what he did. Um, and then he says, But nothing would keep us to have this child baptized and thus acknowledging that this she is a gift from God given to us to prepare her to heaven. And that's how he viewed the duty of parenting, preparing the children to, to heaven. And it's important that we realize what our duty is because it is a fearful thing to cause a child to stumble. Look at verse 6 of uh, Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. See the seriousness there? That it would be better to have a millstone. It would be something this, this large around with a hole in the middle, put around your neck, and drop from a cliff into the deep waters. No, the best swimmer is still going to drown under those uh, um, circumstances. And you know what our lawyer in our hearts first does? As we read this verse, you know the little lawyer in our heart is always justifying? Oh, it's only the children that believe. My children don't believe. So that doesn't apply. Don't go there. We are to treat our children as if they are believers till they prove us otherwise. That's why they're baptized. They're in a special relationship with God. That's the, that, that's the beauty of raising their children in a covenantal relationship. And praise the Lord that people that don't believe in that are inconsistent because they teach their children to pray. 
They said, our Father in heaven wants you to do this. They, the Jesus, they called him Jesus their Lord, and so on. And so we raise our children that way. Instead of raising them as little pagans, we raise them as Christians till they prove otherwise. So let's not try to use those who believe as being some sort of uh, exception that clause that excuses you from your duty as a parent. Your ch- children are, first Corinthians 7, are in a special relationship with, with the Lord. They were not holy, but because you your faith, they are, they are holy. The disciples in this, in this chapter here uh, had asked who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord's response made use of a nearby little one in order to show the disciple the importance of childlike humility. The entry to the kingdom requires a conversion in childlike humility. That's the point. So he's not saying you have to be a little immature child. You must be humble as a little child. Think think about a little child. They can't do anything. Messiahs can't do anything. Right? uh, This age of Messiahs is the... I don't know, hardest, one of the hardest ages to be a parent because they are black holes. Even their smiles because they have gas or something like that. So, so it's, there's nothing that you're getting out of it. You're just pouring inside of, pouring inside of. But it's also a very helpless state. They can't do anything. If left to themselves, they are going to die. Is a complete reliance on someone else. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Like this child that cannot do anything, you must rely on somebody else, namely me, Jesus says. Unless a man is so converted, he would by no means enter the kingdom of God. So that's the point of the passage. Unless you say, oh, you're saying that you have to be childish in order to go to heaven. Now, I understand that's not the point of the passage. But having made the point about humility, the Lord continued to teach on the important subject of children. In a very real way, we can see that the kind of humility Christ was requiring here should be measured in terms of one's attitude toward children. In verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So he does include our attitude towards children in our faith as, as a standard to measure our faith. He then utters the testifying, the terrifying curse of verse 6. Whoever is a stumbling block to believing the little ones lies under the horrible judgment of God. And in the next verse, the Lord states that the world is a sinful place and that offenses to little ones will come, but woe to that man through whom they come. And although Christ is speaking generally, to whom do these words primarily apply? Who are the ones that are most constantly around the children? The parents. So this passage is not about parenting, and yet it's all about parenting as well. Under God's providence, when a man and a woman have a child, they have kindled a spark that can never be put out. That child, blessed or cursed, will exist forever and ever. No peaceful oblivion, oblivion waits for poorly reared children. And further, God has made the world in such a way that parents have a tremendous influence over the direction their children take, either for good or for evil. We all like Proverbs 22, 6, right? 
Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. It's just a statement of fact. It's a truism. How you raise your children, that's what they're going to be when they grow up. That's, that's, that's the statement. That's how things usually work. How serious then should, be, should we as parents be in the fulfilling of these responsibilities? Well, verses 8 and 9 tell us that. Look at verses 8 and 9. If, you, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and cast it into hell fire. And don't pull this out of context. The context is this idea of children and humility and so on. So he hasn't completely changed subject here. That's where these two verses are found. So Jesus says that better to enter life maimed than to be thrown into hell whole and entire. This is in the context of the Lord's teaching about children, as Jesus says in verse 10. In other words, the Lord is teaching us that it is better to maim ourselves. And He's not saying, parents, you should be cutting your legs or your arms out. But it's just the magnitude. That's, that's the figure of, that, that he's trying to paint in our heads. In our heads. Better to maim ourselves than to stumble our, our children, to cause our children to stumble. And that's a very serious warning. Are you with me so far? Okay. Uh, there are three basic truths here that I want us to really understand. Okay? We as parents must be converted men and women so that we are like children. We are malleable. We're teachable. We're humble. Secondly, we are to receive our children in the name of the Lord, for to do so is to receive the Lord. It says that in verse 5. So pregnancy, childbearing, and childrearing should be viewed by us with great honor, because in these things the Lord is visiting us with blessings. There should not be any prejudice against children among those who understand this concept. Are you with me on that? Do you understand the importance of that? Thirdly, we are to take heed that we do not despise our little ones. In verse 10, Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We're not going to deal with the angel part. It's not... You know, it doesn't change what we're saying here, so we're not even going to go there. But we need to take heed to not despise our little ones. And it's hard. Either all day at work or all day with them, and you just want to, you know, turn whatever it is you turn on, leave them in front of that for a while, or the rest of the night. You just want to be done. You just need some relief. And it's easy, to, easy to, in doing that to actually start despising them or neglecting them. And that's something that we have to be aware of. And I think there are at least two ways to be guilty of such despising. One is this. Children are despised when they are neglected, overlooked, pushed to the side for larger, more adult concerns. It's interesting that it was this kind of grown-up uh, importance that Christ rebuked when his disciples tried to keep little ones away from him. Remember the story? 
is is just a chapter later. Um, Parents are trying to bring children, covenant children, to be blessed by the Lord. By the Lord, and this up says, "These are children. He does not have time for them. Go home, leave him alone." And Jesus turns and says, "Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven." Children matter. The Christian faith is not like those rides at Disneyland that you have to be a certain height to ride. Okay? Children matter. They are an everlasting soul for the moment of conception. They don't become that later on as some sort of age of accountability. A second way of despising children is not as evident to us, and yet is the most common way to, of despising children in our society. And it seems countercultural, counterintuitive, what I'm going to say now. Children are despised when we think that we are. Children are despised when we make them the center of our families. That's the despising of the children. We live in a culture that is obsessed with the idol of youth, but there's a, de- a vast difference between the childlike and teachable humility enjoyed by Christ and the childish immaturity worshipped by our society. Children are despised when we pay too much attention to them, when they're the center of the home. So as we, are, as we bring up our children, we should descend to their level in one sense, that is in humility, in order to lead them to our level, that is maturity. Not descending to their level, immaturity, in order to lead them to our level, pride. That's what we do when we make a child-centered home. We must be servants to our, fam- to our children, but we must not cater to them. There's a difference in those two, two ways of raising children. One of the central problems with bringing our children in our day is the constant temptation to underestimate their capacities. We expect them to act as though they have no brains or souls until they have graduated from college. And when we aim at that, we'll hit it every single time. And we have to be careful not to underestimate their capacity. Uh, remember that they are little sinners since conception. They did not become sinners later on in life. But they are also made in God's image since conception. And they are able to function that way as well. Any questions? Or comments? Alright, so we have four minutes. Let me start in talking about some foundation expectations for fathers and mothers. And I, this, is our, this is our just work, right? Uh, it, that's not kidding ourselves. This is not easy. It's not something that happens naturally. It's something that we have to put our minds into it. This one we have to rely on the Lord in prayer for His grace and so on. But in order to undertake the arduous task of child-rearing, every Christian parent must build on certain basic foundational stones. And the first expectation is understanding that in fulfilling our parental duties and privileges, the Bible is sufficient. In fulfilling our parental duties and privileges, the Bible is sufficient. We don't need Dr. Spock, and most of you don't even know who that is. Um, We don't need um, these extra and sometimes unbiblical helps that are 
out there, the Bible is sufficient. Now, it doesn't mean that you only read the Bible. But we raise them according to biblical principles. But parents must remember that all questions that need to... So, bringing up a, a small ch- uh, child, bringing up small children can be mystifying and will present thinking parents with many questions. I hope you've been there. You look at the, the face of your newborn and you just, what in the world am I doing? I feel so sorry for this child. <laughs> I think that's a common experience. So that, that, that's a reality. But parents must remember that all questions that need to be answered can be answered from the Bible. All questions need to be answered in parenting can be answered from the Bible. I think we see that. We see that. We're going to look at this passage later on when we talk about education more closely. But Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. The Lord teaches us that. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures are inspired by God and are profitable for rebuke, for convincing, for reproof, and so on, so that the man of God, the person who serves God, can be complete, equipped for every good work. So no matter of obedience is outside of the scriptures. We don't need something else to learn how to obey God more properly. Um, Christian parents must also remember that discipline is no substitute for regeneration. No, that comes. I'm Emily and I are a firm believer in spanking. Right? Gracie can tell stories of being the fall kids being lined up outside of the room waiting for their turn uh, to go in because somehow all four are involved in something, or at least we thought they were. And uh, I think we've been done that once, but Gracie says it's, it's all the time. But we'll see how. <laughs> Um, so we firmly believed in spanking our kids. We firmly believe what the Bible says concerning spanking. It says that if you spoil the rod, you actually, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. It says that if you don't use the rod, you actually hate your child. So we firmly believed in all that. At the same time, discipline is no substitute for regeneration. We want our children to be born again. Every child, no matter how cute or small they are, they are a sinner. Even Red, my grandson, is a little bundle of sin. Um, strict discipline may channel that sin in socially acceptable ways, but that is all it can do. Godly, strict discipline must always have a goal that goes beyond having well-behaved children. That's not our goal. Our goal is to have believing children. Are, are you with me? We cannot be. We need to be content if our children grow up and make minimum wage for the rest of our lives, and yet faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is what parenting is all about. Not good college, and as as, as a highly educated person, I'm not discouraging that, but that that's not the primary goal of our parenting. Listen to what um, the Holy Spirit says concerning us and our children. It says this, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's not just about us, it's about our children too. By nature, they're children of wrath. That's, that's Ephesians 2, 1 and following. 
when considering age, the Bible does not contrast childish innocence and adult sinfulness. The Bible contrasts the contrast is between immaturity, immature sin, and mature sin, but it's all sin. So the Christian parent must always take the reality of sin and rebellion into account. The fact that the children of Christian parents belong to a covenant home does not alter the reality of sin. Every child, every descendant of Adam needs the forgiveness of, of Christ. And that has to be part of our raising them. A spanking is no substitute for the gospel. And that's something that has to be a reality in our homes. Any questions or comments? All right, so we'll stop here, and when we pick up next time, we're going to start with the, considering the reality that godly child-rearing is covenantal. It's done in relationship with the body of Christ because of the relationship of that child to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gift of children. We pray to bless the children of this church, help us as parents, as, as fellow church members to uh, raise them for your glory, that they all come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, for asking his name. Amen.